0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're moving faster through 1 Thessalonians than some of you expected. Um, We are in chapter 2 after only three and a half weeks in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is only 10 verses or 12 verses, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning We're small, so I'm going to do this without a microphone if that's okay. bothering me this morning. <clears> 1 <throat> Thessalonians chapter 2 For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though We could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. May God add the blessing to the reading and the hearing of His word. As we look at this passage, we want to ask the question, what is a life that's not lived in vain? What does it mean to not live in vain? And I I ask that question because of this. Did you notice... He says, "We, for you yourselves uh, know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. W- Just at start, what would follow that? What would follow that defense? It's not in vain. Typically, what you would expect is something like, well, it's not in vain because you are this way and because we built this thing and because this thing is still there Because there's a long-lasting effect. like You would expect that kind of answer, but that's not what he gives. You would expect, our coming to you is not in vain, and that's evidenced by who you are and who you've become. That's not what he does. It's a weird defense for not being in vain. In fact, what he does is he says, our coming to you was not in vain, and then he outlines what they did when they came. And that's where the lack of vanity is. And vanity, of course, means pointless or waste, right? So Paul uses this idea of not coming in vain several times in Scripture. He uses it to describe what it means to not be in vain. He says uh, to the Corinthians, I, I hope that my ministry is not in vain, and Galatians, that my my ministry to you is not in vain, knowing that you have matured. But here... To the Thessalonians, he says, why is my ministry not in vain? And then he outlines what he did when he was there and who he was when he was there. That my ministry to you was was this way. And that's why we know it's not in vain. So I wanted to talk this morning as we look through this passage with that question in mind. What makes a life not in vain? What makes the work that we do as Christians not in vain? Right? Because in our world, the things that we do seem vain, seem waste. Right? If you don't have 10,000 people coming to your door as a preacher, then your preaching might be in vain. If you don't have uh, a packed room maybe it's in vain if you don't if you aren't seeing lots of lots of uh, cultural shift if you're not on YouTube where people can follow everything you do if you're not on social media where everybody can see every little detail of your life that you curate for them to see not the real stuff but the other stuff if if you're not there then it's in vain if you're not producing then it's in vain if you're not if you're not suddenly making waves in your community with friends, it's not, if you're not getting all the likes and the, the comments and the, the responses, then the world tells you it's in vain. But what does Paul say here in this segment? What is in vain? You see, I think a life that matters is not dependent on other people's reaction to it. A life that matters is not dependent on other people's reactions to it. Your life matters for a completely different reason than other people's likes or comments or even engagement with your life. Your life matters for a completely different reason. A life that matters is not dependent on other people. So Paul gives us his answer as to what a life that is not in vain looks like, look at verse two. But though we had already sh- we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The first thing that makes a life worthy, a life matter, is boldness. For the gospel, boldness for Jesus, boldness for the truth that God Almighty desires a relationship with you, and He has given salvation in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, that you would have life and not just life temporary, but life abundant and free and eternal. And that he's coming back. Boldness to proclaim that. Boldness to state that. And not only to proclaim it with your words, but also with your deeds. That you would prove to the world that there's something greater beyond this life. That you would prove to them in your lifestyle, boldness for the gospel. And look at how he says it, even amidst suffering and conflict. So where does this boldness come from? He says, but we already had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. So before he went to Thessalonica, they had been uh, locked up in Philippi and they had been thrown in jail. And that's the one where they, the Philippian jailer, uh, he comes running. They, They, the shackles, fall off, the gates open, and the Philippian jailer in a panic runs, and he's ready to commit suicide, and uh, Paul says, don't worry, we're still here, and God uh, miraculously provides for them, and they end up leaving, because they appeal as Roman citizens, they end up leaving Philippi, but it's hard, and it was a difficult place to be, and they were mistreated and shamefully treated in Philippi, and they went from there to Thessalonica, And in Thessalonica, if you remember what we covered just a couple weeks ago, we have this picture where uh, Jason is drugged from his house by a mob. Drugged from his house by a mob with the other Christians who are there. And Paul escapes Thessalonica by the skin of his teeth. He escapes at night. He And Timothy are sent away at night before anybody, or he and Silas are sent away at night before anybody can get to them. And they're ushered out of town real quick. And Jason has to pay a fee and is shamefully treated and is mistreated by the governing authorities, the mob, the Jewish people around them. They're shamefully treated. And so we have this boldness that comes first in suffering and conflict. Difficulties make you more bold. Difficulties and suffering and persecutions and pressing on us and those things make us more bold, not less. So when we are thinking about the reality of how do we become bold, boldness comes from walking through difficult circumstances. In my own personal life, as I have found, the more difficult a circumstance I walk through, when I come out the other end, I'm a whole lot more bold for the gospel. Because all the stuff I thought mattered kind of gets chiseled away in those difficult moments. Now, praise the Lord, that's not the only way. It's not the only way that He develops us. Because if it was the only way he developed us, then we would be uh, exhausted all the time. He also develops us in moments of peace and in moments where we look at the sky and we see the stars or where we see the, the earth like we did earlier when we were praying, where you're thinking about creation and how beautiful it is and how wonderful God is in creation and those moments of deep abiding peace that we have as well. But boldness is generated partly from suffering and from conflict. Second, boldness comes from God leading us through those things. Boldness comes from God, and it comes from a long time walking with Him. A long time walking with Him. There is a difference between youthful zeal and powerful gospel boldness often when a Christian becomes a Christian for the first time, he's loaded with useful and youthful zeal. He's on fire. He, he or she will proclaim the gospel openly and with boldness and with, without fear, and they'll, they'll be super excited. And what we'll see is that that youthful zeal frequently hits a wall at some point. And in that moment when it hits the wall, you find the difference between gospel boldness and youthful zeal. Gospel boldness presses through the wall. And it gets stronger. And more faithful. And sometimes more reserved. Sometimes more reserved. We see gospel boldness comes from walking with God for a significant amount of time. Verse 3, Paul then tells us the next step to living a life without vanity. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. The second thing here is that our audience is God. Note that Paul is partly defending himself. He's defending himself to the Thessalonians because there there must be some rumors that are going around. Just look at what he says about himself here in verse 3. Our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity. Jump down to verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, for a pretext or for greed. nor did we seek glory from people in verse 6. Paul is clearly defending himself among accusations, probably from the mob. Probably from the mob that said, he's only here to take your money. He's only here to take your stuff. That's the only reason Paul came. He's only here to ask for money. Because remember, the Thessalonians, when they hear about the need in other churches, they give abundantly out of their poverty. They are Macedonian believers who give abundantly out of their poverty to take care of the other people. They they give openly. They hand their money over for Paul to use for the work of ministry. So we see this. Paul is answering, he's answering some objections in his statements here. He's answering some objections, and he's he's pointing out that those, those accusations matter nothing to him. The accusations of impurity or an attempt to deceive or an appeal that springs from error of some sort. There's, these, are, these are accusations that are just not true. And, and he explains that my, my second reason for a life that is not vain, for this ministry not being vain, is that my audience is God, not you my approval is from the lord not from you not from people not from the society around me likewise for us it's the same our approval comes from god not from men not from women not from social media not from not from the government not from anything but from god it comes from god himself we are looking at what he says he has approved by God. Our security and our emotional and personal identity is not wrapped up in what people think about us, but in what God thinks about us. So what God wants is what we want. That's that's where we derive our personhood and our identity from. Second, we're proved by God, but also entrusted by God with the gospel. This word entrusted means given faith or faithfully given something. We are entrusted having faith put in us for the provision of the gospel to be given to everybody else. So so hear this. God believes that you are going to give the gospel appropriately where it goes. God entrusted you with His word. With the gospel. You're approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. And how do we know that? Because you have it. You have the gospel. You have heard someone say at some point Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again that you would have life. You have the gospel. Therefore, you have been given faith by God to give that out. God has confidence in in you because he gave you The gospel, look again there at verse 4. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So God has given you the gospel. He's approved of you to have the gospel. And he tests your hearts in why you are using the gospel and how you are using the gospel. He tests you. He is the one who engages your heart and sees the exam and knows what you need and don't need. That's who God is. That's what God has done. We have the gospel and our audience is God himself. He's the one we aim to please. Third and probably most heavy Here is verse 6 through 12. Actually, verse 5 through 12. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Like, nurse, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own, and let's put, the word there is psyche. This word is the word we translate soul elsewhere in Scripture but we translate it selves here. I think the better terminology here is soul because it's getting at what Paul is, is talking about with the Thessalonians. Intertwining souls together. So he says, our own souls we were, but we wanted to give also to you our own souls because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we have this third thing we want to key in on, and that's this sharing of souls. Ministry and life together in the church is not easy. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be. It's not an easy thing to break your soul in half with other people. To intertwine your soul with people, to bear with one another's burdens, to hold up one another, to, to deal with brokenness constantly is not easy. And Paul has this statement in here motherly and fatherly, and they bookend the passage. Did you notice motherlies first, nurturing mother, and then father? is last. He said, we were like mothers to you. We were like fathers to you. We labored and toiled like a dad, and we worked to nurse you like a mother. We were gracious and kind and motherly to you. So we see this picture. We did not seek glory from other people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he says this very openly. We didn't, we didn't seek the glory of others. We didn't seek for you to take care of everything, though we could have. We have every right to. We're apostles. We're sent by Jesus. Now, I want to just clarify something. The word apostle is used relatively loosely by Paul here because he's referring to himself and Silas and Timothy. Right? Those are the three guys that he's referring to. Now, According to the textbook definition of apostle, that's those who walked with Jesus and were appointed by Jesus directly. So you've got the eleven disciples, and then you've got Paul. Right? And if you want to be academic, you can argue Matthias, because they're voted in by he's voted in as one of the new twelve when Judas is taken out. Um, but here Paul uses the term much more loosely. He uses the term loosely in the book of Romans too. Don't let that scare you. He uses the term loosely pretty frequently throughout the Bible, apostles. But there is something to be said here. He's he's calling apostles people who have come, who have come out with a mission from Jesus Christ to labor in teaching others. That's what Paul seems to be calling an apostle. Those who come to a place with a mission, they're sent by Jesus to a place with a mission to teach others about the gospel. Specifically in laboring and teaching to show the gospel to others. So not just being a good Christian where they live, not just... Going, but the apostle, that he's the way that Paul seems to use the term is that apostle is somebody who is intentionally in an area for the purpose of ministry and mission of the gospel. And he says, As an apostle, I have every right to demand something from you. It'd be fine for me to say, You guys are going to provide for these needs, you're going to do these things, you're going to take care of these needs for me. And he said, But we didn't. We didn't make demands. We didn't put anything on you. We purposefully didn't burden you. So he's defending himself again here as he launches into this soul tying. He's defending himself again. And I think there's a reason he needs to defend himself or at least he feels like it. I think what's going on is people are starting to get snippy. If you're in church ministry for more than a month or if you're in a church for more than a month, one church, where you don't leave, you find that people get snippy. They do. And it's not, I mean, it's just human nature. We get snippy about stuff, right? Often, the American church gets snippy about silly things. Like the color of carpet, how many TV screens we're supposed to have, the sound volume's not loud enough or it's too loud. There's too many things in the room. There's not enough things in the room. There's too many children. There's not enough children. There's... You know, we got this need over here and that need over there. We get snippy about silly things. Nobody in the American, often in the American church, we're not snippy about things that matter. We're usually snippy about things that don't. Like, I want my own lamp in my own corner. And I'd like my specific thing to be this way. Fine. We get snippy about those things. These brothers and sisters, I think we're dealing with some snippiness. I think that, and I think they were probably dealing with some people who were uh, starting to turn away and reject the gospel ministry because that was common in the early church. That's not a new phenomenon for us. This has happened all through history. When the church begins, there's always, always, in every place, a dropping off of people. It's, It's normal. It's the way that life works. People try out new things because ta-da is exciting. You know what I mean by ta-da? You know, ta-da, it's exciting. That's an exciting thing. Whereas steady, slow trudging is not exciting. But steady, steady, slow trudging is what makes you powerful and bold in the gospel. So we see him speaking here, and he, he defends himself, and then he says, verse 7, and I want to key in on two things. One, the nursing mother, and two, the father, both as examples of sharing your soul with each other. So verse 7, but we like we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. There is no greater picture in the world than a mother nursing her child, as an affectionate picture of soul engagement. There is something that a mother has that a man will never be able to replicate no matter what, a connection that is made in the nursing of a child that a a man cannot replicate, even if they strive to be gentle and meek and loving and spend all their time with their kids, they can never replicate that reality, that bond, where a soul is poured out in nourishment to another soul. So Paul uses this example as what he's doing. He's pouring into somebody else all their energy. I remember bringing my wife our children when they were infants. My family has a rule that real men get the baby. That's, and you'll hear me say it whenever somebody's getting married or whenever somebody's about to have a kid. You'll hear me repeat that over and over. Real men get the baby. Because real men wake up and when the baby wakes up, wake up at night, go get the kid, bring them to the wife, wait for the wife to nurse, take the baby and put it back. And the reason, I say, the reason we say real men get the baby is because that is an extreme sacrifice for men who have to work all the time. For men who are exhausted at 5 a.m. my dad who was exhausted did this. So you can look at me and go, "Well, you you don't you have a job that lets you sleep till a certain." Yeah, my dad was a doctor in an obstetrics and gynecology who woke up frequently to deliver babies and then came home and was exhausted. And when we cried at night, got up and got the kid. Real men get the baby. Real men die for their wives. They they die daily for their wives. That's Ephesians chapter 5, by the way. Christ lays down his life for the church. Likewise, real men lay down their lives. They lay down their lives for their wives and children. So, we have this picture here. Of nursing, So I I remember bringing my child to my wife and her being exhausted and broken and weak and literally falling asleep sometimes, feeding the child in the middle of the night. We had to use, with some children, we had to like do certain things to keep them awake so they'd eat, right? They all had funny things that they did. You'd hold them up and they'd like, one of them would do this and kind of go limp. Another one would like, stiff as a board so you held up your hand and just right across stiff as a board like they would they would do things to try and fight and yet here's my 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 beautiful bride pouring out nourishment on these children and that's what we do when we share our souls with each other that's what you do when you grab another believer and you go hey Hey, I'm with you. I see your struggles. I see your difficulties. I'm with you. Let's go sit and chat. Let's go let's walk together. Let, I don't you don't have to say anything. I'll just sit there and I will be there for you to pour out my heart for you because I care about you. This is the picture that he's giving. Is a nursing mother exhausted exhausted and and broken, and yet so affectionate for them that they're pouring out nourishment for them. They're taking care of their every need. They're they're literally laboring over these people and working to share their souls. They are affectionate. Being, verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you. They're affectionate for you. Listen, when you're when your Christian brothers and sisters come to you and ask you for something, or they come to tell you they want to spend time with you, or they, or they come and they say, I want to do... It's not because they have some motivation. If they're Christian, it's because they are affectionate towards you, because they love you. That's it. I don't... Look, I'm an introvert. If I go to coffee with somebody because I love them. I would rather sit in my office and paint pictures and write books, but the love of Christ burns in me for other people. Some of you are the same way. Some of you, like, you'd rather be like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I'd just rather take a long walk. Like, I get it. I understand. I also understand what Paul is saying here. I'm affectionately desirous of you, like I, I long for you to get it, for you to see it and to know it. That you would be burdened with the same things I'm burdened with, that you would want holiness and righteousness and goodness, and that you would understand that long term relationships where you are pouring yourself into somebody else like an affectionate mother, this is because you are loved and cared for, soul sharing is motherly and affectionate. They were ready to share the not only the gospel of God, but our very own souls. They were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but our very own souls. Listen, being in church together is hard. Being in community together is difficult. But it's worth it. Being in church together requires sharing your souls. There is a generation right now of young people that don't share anything. They don't. They don't share anything except for their own gain. They. They don't share their. I don't know which generation it is. You, know, A Z X, Alpha. I don't know. Whatever this generation is that's coming, they they don't share anything broken they they have a wall it's in front of them and when you call them and go hey let's go sit and chat and i just want to care i just want to show you i care and you bring them something it makes them incredibly uncomfortable so church make people uncomfortable We have to make people uncomfortable. Otherwise, they're going to die. Call people. Get with people. Listen, I understand if you don't want to. I don't want to. The reason that it's done in me is because Christ compels me to do it. And because I love these other people. I understand the feeling of, I'm tired, and I just want to go to bed. I understand the feeling of my social capital is exhausted. I understand that feeling. But if we are to live a life that is not vain, we must be willing to share our souls. We must be willing to share our souls with people. And not people who are going to be easy to do that with. We see examples of this all through scripture with Paul. Sharing his soul with people constantly. Galatians who scorned him. Corinthians who never listened to him. We're studying 1 Corinthians on Thursday nights right now. And man, I'm glad that we are not Corinth. I'm glad that we are not that church on multiple levels. But we watch as Paul shares his soul with them and is broken for them and is broken with them, so much so that he tells them at one point, would you, you want me to come with a rod or with gentleness? Like what, you choose, which one? But things are so messed up right now that I gotta come with one or the other and it's probably gonna be the rod. You know, there are are two letters in Corinth that were written that God preserved. Academics think that there was a third one because Paul references his angry letter in 2 Corinthians the letter i wrote when i was angry with you god either there was a lot more anger in the first corinthian letter or god saw fit to not preserve an angry letter god is gracious and merciful but when you intertwine your souls with people you're going to have some hurts. You're going to have some struggles. It's going to be hard. Like a nursing mother who nurses nurses their child is exhausted. You're going to have some trouble. But you do it because the end of that verse 8, because you had become very dear to us. You do it because these people are dear to you because Jesus Christ set his affections on them and he set his affections on you and that can't help but be poured out all over everything. Then we see the next part here of sharing our souls is the father work. You've got the mother work of sharing your souls, the nurturing, the nourishment. This is the part, honestly, the nourishment and the nurturing is the part people usually like from you. We don't necessarily like to do it, but we'd love to receive that nourishment. Like We love to receive when people will take us to coffee, when people will do things for us, when people will, will, will spend time sitting across from us, when people will make meals for us, when people will teach us the gospel and then just put us back to, to bed, like nurse us and then put us back, change our diaper and put us back in bed. Right, we love that. Right. This is the fatherly part. There's a second part to sharing your soul with somebody. And this is it. Look at it. For you remembered, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. So we see here the first part. They work tirelessly so they're not a burden to other people. Part of sharing your soul is working to take care of yourself To make yourself strong enough so that you are able to labor. But it's exhausting. Men work. Men work. Boys play. Men work. Young women, please hear me. Men work. You don't want a boy. You want a man who will labor and work. Paul uses this illustration of a man who, who works. He labors. He works. And he says, We worked tirelessly so not to be burdened to you, like a father does, a good father who works so that he's not a burden on his family and children. He works and labors So that nobody has to provide. He is providing for everyone else. This is is the nature of men. Like this is the nature of man and woman. Nurturer is woman. Man is laborer. From the beginning, the curse of the woman is that nurturing is going to be hard. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And you will have children in deep Sorrow. Deep and abiding sorrow. Nurturing is hard. That's the curse of humanity because of sin. What's the curse for men? You know it. Genesis chapter 3. The ground will yield to you thorns and thistles. Work is going to be hard. Work is hard. So Paul looks at us and goes, part of sharing your soul is that you are nurturing which is difficult because the people you offer nourishment to are like children and may not reciprocate, and you'll be exhausted. And then the second half of soul sharing is you get to work. You get to labor. You have nothing to share, so just by way of application, you have nothing to share if you aren't putting any of God's word into you. The average person in the United States a few years ago, according to Barna, read the Bible, the average Christian who professed that he was a Christian, read the Bible for less than 15 minutes a week. A week. I I can't fathom reading the Bible for less than 15 minutes a day. But a week, that's wild. The average person doesn't open their Bible except on Sunday morning, the average Christian. That's ridiculous. How do you have anything to give? How do you have anything to share souls with? Like, we ought to be infused with the word. We ought to labor and work so that we're not a burden to everybody else, but so that we have something to give to everybody else. This is just a general practical application. You ought to be disciplined in your own spiritual life so that you are laboring to help others and theirs. This is who we are. We are to a life that is not lived in vain is one that works so that no one would be, a, that you wouldn't be a burden to other people. So there's both that spiritual application and there's the practical application of Paul and his brothers were literally not a burden. They got jobs and they worked so that they didn't have to burden the Thessalonican believers. Paul was a tent maker and he labored and toiled to make extra money elsewhere so he didn't have to take from them. And he goes on, now don't get me wrong, he goes on to say there's a place for pastors to be paid, and you should pay them. But we worked and toiled that you wouldn't have to, like fathers who worked and labored over you, who worked so as to not be a burden while proclaiming the gospel. Then, verse 10 you are witnesses and to God also, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. So as a father to them, he is holy and righteous and blameless. That does not mean that he is perfect. I just want to be clear. That means in his conduct, he did nothing wrong. I can't tell you how many times I have been confident in the Lord that I had done nothing wrong when people slandered me. It is going to happen. If you are a Christian who intertwines their soul with other people like you are commanded to do, and we share our souls together, you are going to get slandered occasionally and you want to be able to say this. You want to be able to say I was blameless and upright and my conduct was right. You want to be able to say it because that's part of not being in vain. Can you say it? Can you say that you didn't act with deceit? You didn't act with, with slander. You didn't... You didn't answer back wickedly, but you were righteous and upright and blameless. I hope you can. Because that's part of being a father. Verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So they, get this, they... They're called into a kingdom and glory. They're called to a different citizenship than the world that they're in. They're called to live a different citizenship. They are called out of darkness into light. They are called from idolatry to the worship of Jesus. They're called out of citizenship here into citizenship in heaven, which arguably, not arguably, unarguably, emphatically, makes them better citizens here. Because they're citizens of a greater kingdom that gives them greater mores by which to make this world better. So we see that Paul says, like a father, I exhorted you and encouraged you this way. I encouraged you towards righteousness. Like a father. This is not fun to do exhorting somebody and encouraging somebody who does not want to work is not fun to do. Oh, it's fun when you meet that believer who's on fire and is super excited and you go, hey, do you want to read this book together? They say, yes. You want to do this together? They say, yes. And and you get charged up and they're pursuing righteousness and holiness and they're looking at you going, okay, what do I do next? What do I do next? Like, let's keep going. And they're running and they're working and they're growing as a disciple. But how many times and how often it is that that's not the case. That you sit across from somebody and you go, hey, I, really, I see this issue in your life. And they go, I don't care what you see in my life. You can't talk to me about that. Or they go, yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. I see that. Yeah, I see that same thing. And then do nothing. That's the most often one. But as a father with a child, we are as a community to exhort and encourage one another. To lift one another up and to go, Come this way. Come this way. Live righteous. Live holy. Live justified. Live live like you believe. Live like a citizen of heaven. We're to encourage one another that way. And this is all part of intertwining our souls. And I just want to be real honest with you. You're going to have moments like Paul has where he goes, you know who I am. You know what I did among you. You know how I was righteous and blameless. How I didn't do I didn't do anything wrong. You know that I was laboring with you and that I was with you. And that we sat across the table from each other, worshiping the Lord. Like we we've been in the trenches together. There are going to be moments when you're doing that because you've intertwined your soul, and the person across from you is gonna go, I don't care, I don't want it, and they're gonna be rejecting what you have given. And that is hard. And that is hard. But it does not mean you don't intertwine your souls. Because I will tell you this. No matter how much people reject you or the gospel, your audience is not them. Your audience is not them. It's Jesus. No matter how many times people you labor and love and care for scorn you and spit on you and reject what you have to give them, your audience is not them. Your audience is not them. A life that matters does not depend on the actions of other people. A life that matters depends on you and your actions. You want a life that matters? Be bold with the gospel, make your purpose. Be bold with the gospel. Your audience is the Lord. You want a life that matters? Your audience is the Lord. Finally, you want a life that matters? Intertwine your soul with other people. Offer people your soul. Offer people your soul. And yes, it's hard. Yes, it breaks you. But it is worth it. It is worth it and it is worthy. It is worth it and it is worthy. This is the truth of what Jesus Christ has done in us, that we would have life and life abundant and free together. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would be people who share our souls with one another and with others, that we would be people broken for the gospel, people who love you and follow hard after you, who nurse others like mothers, who exhort others like fathers and who are bold only to please you, that we would please you with all that we are. We love you and we trust you. Amen. In, in all of our getting...